Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Probably full disclosure. Uh, I have just been watching, probably a bad idea, um, some of the Kobe Bryant tribute videos and I'm in that kind of place. It's just kind of maybe quite thoughtful about time and um, how we make use of it. And I suppose on that note, I want to say that I appreciate your time, whether you're here with me for a few minutes or for the whole hour. I really appreciate that. So um, I will try to value your time and make sure that I try to give you something of value and use in the next hour or so that we have together. And um, yeah, so we'll give it a kind of minute or so for everybody else to arrive. If anybody needs to pop off and get a cup of tea, go and do that. Now's the moment. And, uh, and then we'll get started. All right. So before we kick off, as ever, does anybody have any observations or thoughts about the book this one in case anybody hasn't been able to um hasn't read the book yet or wants to catch up afterwards I am I have managed to record this one so there will be a recording of this um once I get it up so Lost Connections by Johan Hari is our book it's a book that looks at the non-pharmacological causes and responses to depression which Obviously, as a psychologist who works with people one-on-one in therapy is something that I have dedicated my life to. And it was one that was really requested by you guys. So I thought it would be a good one to kick off the new year. And hopefully you've all found something valuable in it, or at least something interesting. Because I think, although we have a conversation about mental health and everybody's talking about mental health, and my friend the My Medic is online and we have discussions about this, how you know we're all having conversations about mental health, often the conversation doesn't really go very far because frankly there isn't enough investment in treatments for mental health for it to go much farther than that but also the risk is something that I'll probably come back to later in the conversation the risk is that if we're telling individuals that they need to talk more ask for help more reach out more we might inadvertently be putting the emphasis on the individual for issues or causes of depression and mental illness that might be socially related. And that's something that we have to be very, very careful about. One of the things that I will sometimes say to people who come and see me, and I work in central London, lots of kind of very high-flying professionals or people who uh, are at least very ambitious and, you know, push themselves very, very hard, is a lot of the time, it's not you, it's London. You know, we need to be aware of the context, the impact of our environments on our well-being and our mental health. And we need to, as individuals, be aware of when we're responding to something unhealthy in the environment. And as a mental health professional, I need to be very careful that I'm not colluding with something. So I'm not sending someone out and making them think, oh, it's something, you just need to be tougher. You need to just be more resilient. You just need to work harder or you're not thinking about it right. When actually it might be something quite unhealthy or quite toxic in the environment that they're in. So I always feel like I've got quite a big responsibility to be very careful and very mindful about whether or how much of a distribution of the issue of the problem is with the person that I'm working with, with the individual, and how much of it is in the environment so that we can really get to the root cause as much as possible. So I guess those were my my opening thoughts. And... I think it's probably worth me saying that I was a little bit, 
I hadn't read this book. It's been out for, I think, a couple of years and I hadn't read it. And I was a little bit anxious about it because I was worried that it was going to, re- it was going to present the biopsychosocial model of uh, depression as something that the author had just come up with all by himself. And I was very <laughs> pleased to see that he didn't do that, um, that he does reference the biopsychosocial model. And, and, and I guess the point of the book is to say that although the biopsychosocial model of mental distress is well, no, obviously it's what psychologists and psychiatrists are trained in, it's not necessarily the message about depression that gets out to the public um, and to the community in general. And um, I'll go into it, and but I just realised that what I might do tomorrow, because obviously I'm in the office now, I can't do it now, but um, what I might do tomorrow is do a quick video on the serotonin hypothesis. So the basic, the kind of mechanics of the hypothesis as to why serotonin is the cause of depression. Uh, full disclosure, it's not a h- hypothesis that I... I don't find it very helpful. Um, I think it's more descriptive than explanatory. And I think actually what we need is our better explanatory models. Um, I talk about this much more in my book. Um, but what I'll do tomorrow is give you guys a little video just so at least you understand what the uh, serotonin hypothesis of depression is so that you feel like you've got a working sense of it. So that said, the biopsychosocial model of depression, and if we stick with depression because that's what the book is focused on, um, is just that biological, psychological and social determinants of things that will lead to, contribute to or exacerbate depression. So bio, sorry, there's a, I'm right where my office is, is right on the corner of the street. So there's when they stop at the lights, you get traffic noises. I apologise for that. So the bio might be things like your genetic or familial risk. Um, so whether depression runs in your family. It might be things like your interuterine exposure. So when your mother was pregnant with you, was she exposed to maybe stress or infection or were there certainly certain nutritional deficiencies or imbalances? those sorts of things where there, you know, surges of hormones that you were exposed to that might have had an effect on the way that your brain develops. Um, Actually, before I carry on, that's probably one of the areas that I think the book doesn't put enough emphasis on. And obviously, it's an area that I care a lot about. But what we're seeing a lot more of or what the research is really thinking about is the impact on the infant's developing brain of nutrition of maternal nutritional deficiencies so um, again I might do a video on this tomorrow but certainly in animal models they've shown for example that if the animal mother isn't getting enough uh, essential fatty acids for example which as you'll know by now if you've hung around here for a little while are the building blocks of the brain cell they create the, they form the membrane around your brain cells if the mother isn't getting enough of that then the developing baby's brain doesn't get enough of that and it can affect the, you know, the development of the brain. So we think that perhaps maternal nutrition and infant nutrition is going to be one of the big issues, I think, going forward in terms of uh, population rates of mental illness. But anyway, so that's the bio part of the biopsychosocial model. The psycho part or the psychological part is lots of different aspects of your psychology. So one of the things that we know is that temperament can be a big factor in one's innate resilience. And so your resilience, we think of as your capacity to bounce back when things are difficult or when you're faced with a challenge. And um, and we know, for example, that people who are more laid back, more relaxed, the kind of people who, you know, everything's water for ducks back, tend to be more resilient to struggles or issues that emerge than people who are perhaps a little bit more neurotic or a little bit more anxious constitutionally. So again, that's something that crosses over with the biological and the psychological part, right? Because there's going to be a part of that which you can't control. You can't control whether you're a little bit more anxious or you're someone who's got a tendency to feel more neurotic or more relaxed. So temperament is one of the factors that affects your risk of certain psychological 
concerns. Another might be, of course, your early life experience and your early life exposure to things like stress. So we know, for example, that, and if you saw my post from a little while back, um, it's the one with the brain and the tape measure, and it's reporting on um, brain scans of children who were raised in Romanian orphanages during uh, Ceausescu's Uh, reign. And what they found was that there was a difference in the brain size of the children who've been raised in developmental deprivation. Uh, Is this recorded? Yes, it is. So that, and and the the understanding is that it's that experience of deprivation that affected the development of the brains. And I went and I described in the post, and I'll say again now, that what we understand, first of all, is that stress hormones are you know when they're in a in a balance absolutely fine you know every now and again a little bit of stress isn't going to cause you any harm so i just want to let you know that you know we talk a lot about stress but stress is a natural response the issue is when stress is chronic um and when you can't come back to baseline and so what happens uh is that when stress is very very high during development so when the brain is still developing it can affect the way that the brain connections are formed and as a response, a few things can happen. So one is that the area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is uh, really crucial for memory and learning, it's also got a lot of the receptors for those stress hormones. So it's always looking out for stress hormones. And if an infant or an adult, if we're thinking about the developing brain, has a really high exposure to those stress hormones, it can start to overwhelm the hippocampus and the hippocampus can start to shrink. And we can see that often because children who have had very stressful and very adverse childhoods can often have difficulties keeping up with learning. So that we think is one of the relationships. The other is that it kind of turns up. So you have a shrinking of hippocampus, but then you have an expansion of another part of the brain called the amygdala. And that's your brain's threat detection center is a part of your brain that makes a decision about whether something is dangerous or not right so if you imagine you know if you're in the kitchen you open a cupboard and something falls down that that instant response and then you're like oh no it's okay it's just i don't know some flour or whatever that's the the amygdala is is involved in making the decision about whether what's coming for you is something dangerous or whether it's just something innocuous and if you've had a lot of exposure to danger, to stress or threat, what can happen is that you can shift into a state of what's called hypervigilance. And that's the idea that there's a part of your brain that is always on the lookout for the next danger, the next threat, the next cause or source of harm. And in a sense, that is it's a kind of safety behavior because it means that you're you're almost one step ahead. But what it does is that it means that your your stress is much easily, much more easily triggered. So what can happen is that people who have had chronic exposure to danger or threat or adverse childhoods is that they're much more likely to have their stress triggered again and, and that the threshold is less. So something that someone else might be able to brush off or recover from quite quickly, someone who's had this negative early experience will perhaps struggle much more in recovering from that, or it might knock them much more than it would somebody else. Does that make sense? So the other part of the psych, so I'm still talking about the models, the other part of the, the psychological aspect of it is really your early learning environment. So if you grow up with a model of distress management, which is, let's say you've got a parent who helps you to work through your feelings, who sits you down and says, oh, I know that you're stressed or I know that you're worried or you seem nervous about this exam or, you know, helps you to understand that your emotions have meaning, that uh, you're still cared for and looked after and it doesn't matter what happens because it's going to be okay and that this feels painful and and uncomfortable now, but in time it will pass and you will recover and there will be a point in the future where this is in the past and you'll feel better. Then what will happen is that you'll internalise a sense of, an ability to cope. You'll have this kind of capacity to be like, oh, okay, this is stressful. I feel anxious now. I'm worried about this thing, but I know I can manage it. I know I can ask for help and I know that it will be over soon. So when it's done, it's done and I can carry on and live my life. 
And on the flip side, perhaps if you don't have somebody that can help you to teach you how to process your emotions or if the people around you are very, very stressed. So if you have parents who are under a lot of financial pressure or if your housing is insecure or if there's uh, addiction or mental health problems in the family so there isn't that additional capacity to help you learn about your emotional well-being then that's going to reduce your capacity for resilience and that's going to make it more difficult for you when you are faced with difficult or challenging circumstances to feel more resilient to it. So that's the bio-psycho part of the biopsychosocial model, like nuts. Um, And so the social part is the other bits. So it's about what your group of friends is like. You know, are they a supportive group? Actually, on that note, I am working on a podcast on toxic female relationships and frenemies. So um, I'll I'll do a separate story about that, but I'm really looking forward to that one. and we'll be asking for submissions or questions for that one. Anyway, so we're talking about social relationships and the impact of, say, your friendships on your well-being and the whether you enjoy your work, whether you find your work meaningful or stressful or whether it feels uh, overwhelming, whether you feel that you're not appreciated at work, whether you are exposed to abuse, prejudice, racism, oppression of some kind, um, socially, all of those things will affect your psychological well-being from a social standpoint. So (laughs) all of that is to say that there are a lot of factors that influence someone's risk of depression. And I guess one of the things that I want to say is that we talk about depression as if it's one standalone illness. It's just one thing. Your depression, your depression, your depression is all the same thing. And and, I've, and that's not true. That it might look the same. It might present in very similar ways, but each person's depression is different. It will have different causes. Each person has a different level of tolerance for stress and distress. And therefore, my big thing is that we need to take time. When I say we, I mean uh, mental health professionals. We need to take time to give people a proper assessment. So I think that's one of the big failings in mental health treatment at the moment. And that's because of underfunding and undersourcing. That the big question when you go perhaps to your GP is, are you depressed or not? where actually we need an extension to that question, which is, and if you are, what's causing your depression? Because I think it's only when we're properly addressing those causes that we can start to give people the kinds of effective treatments that they need. So one of the things that really struck me is actually the levels of psychological distress. And he quotes um, American population Uh, incidents and one in five Americans are on a psychiatric drug the one in four women of middle age being on an antidepressant and I feel like we need to be taking these numbers seriously I think there's a way in which we kind of normalize this and I I worry about the idea that we take 25 percent 20 percent of our population being significant enough psychological distress to be medicated as normal you know and that isn't to demonize or stigmatize the individual it's really about asking quite serious questions about why everyone is struggling so much right why have we somehow created an environment a society a culture in which a big chunk of the population struggles and maybe more, you know, because there's always sub-threshold suffering, right? So maybe there's a group of people who are ill enough to get a diagnosis, but there's a group of people who are just about keeping it together. Why is that the norm? Why have we accepted that that's okay? Why have we accepted that that's, I feel like I'm getting on my soapbox, but (laughs) I think we shouldn't take uh, statistics like that for granted. And I think there should be a lot more serious questions being asked at a policy level as to what's going on and what happens when you have such an unhappy population. 
Okay, a couple of questions in. Can I find this information anywhere? I'm, I will presume that, I mean, maybe I can do a live check now. I presume that you can find information on the biopsychosocial model online. I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to do like some live reporting for you. Um, biopsychosocial model. Yes. So yeah, there's lots of it on it. So you can certainly find info on the biopsychosocial model there. You can look up the serotonin hypothesis. Obviously, in my book, <laughs> I talk about what I think is a better explanatory hypothesis for depression um, because it explains some of the the reasons. So the, the, my issue with the serotonin hypothesis, when I say it's just descriptive, is all that it says is your serotonin is low. It doesn't say why, right? Because presumably at some point, your serotonin was fine. You know, you didn't, you weren't born with low serotonin. So my issue with the serotonin hypothesis is that it's not explanatory enough. It doesn't explain what's gone wrong with your serotonin synthesis or with the receptors, that kind of thing. Um, sorry, just gonna go back to a question. Yes, someone said uh, agree and those self self-medicating. Yeah, the number of people who are just getting through by smoking more, drinking more, doing drugs, over-exercising, you know, any workaholism, any of these kinds of ways that people use to try to keep themselves together, I think end up being underreported in levels of distress. So someone's a big believer in food can help stress levels, therefore indirectly impact mental health. What is your view about the use of food as part of the solution? I feel like Liliana, you're new around here. <laughs> I only say that because it's one of the big things that I talk about. I really want people to start taking nutrition much more seriously. I certainly within, if I'm working with someone, want to be thinking about what they're eating and encouraging them to support their nutrition better. And I have a dietitian who I work with who I can refer to for that. So I would certainly see it as part of the whole, because as I'm always saying, your brain is an organ and like other organs in your body, it needs proper nutrition to function well. And we can't be expecting your brain to function well if it's undernourished and it doesn't have the building blocks it needs to build connections, to make neurotransmitters, to, you know, do all the kind of everyday housekeeping that it needs to do. So I absolutely think that nutrition plays a big role in well-being and that we sh certainly should be thinking about it in terms of a holistic approach to mental health, which is why... I call my approach whole body mental health. So yeah, um, lots of posts on that if you scroll back. Um, uh, the solution, um, I think, is a cross-party agreement. I, I have a whole section on this. Um, I think we need a cross-party agreement. So not just one government in uh, power for four years to make a decision and then it gets overturned by the next government that comes in. I think we need a cross-party agreement for a long-term investment. I think we need to start with uh, pregnant women. Uh, I think that when a woman is pregnant, she should be, we should be checking that her housing is secure. We should be checking that she's properly nourished. We should be checking whether she needs therapy. She, we should be investing in mothers and at-risk families, ensuring that children don't go to school hungry, that children have proper nutrition, classes are overcrowded i think we need a long-term serious investment rather than lots of short sharp soundbite policies that do nothing for anybody i'm gonna get a bit punchy now so i'm gonna <laughs> stop but yes i think i think the answer is is policy better policy better investment from us and can confirm my doctor suggested giving me medication four times just because i said being around people makes me tired girl <laughs> everybody would be medicated if that was the case and actually maybe what you're describing is simply being an introvert and and I think there's a big way in which introversion is pathologized uh, because we live in a very pro extrovert environment but introverts for example very commonly find being in groups of people even people groups of people that they like you know after a while it's exhausting but the person who gets promoted is the extrovert. The person who gets asked to do the presentation is the extrovert. And so things are very unbalanced. So yeah, I think it's, I, yeah, I'm not going to diss other professionals, but yeah, maybe there's a bigger discussion to be had there. Um, another question, how would someone identify the reasons for depression? Um, I think that really comes from working with a, a mental health professional. We are trained to look 
to ask the right questions and to look for things. And I cannot tell you the number of times that I've had someone come in to me and say, oh, I can't work it out. or I don't know what it is or it's this thing. And actually it's been something else because they have, because it's their everyday life, because it's something that they've normalized because they've lived with it for so long, they often can't see the impact that it's having on them. And it takes someone, A, with an external view, but also B, with the training to be able to put those pieces together and say, actually, let's pull it back. Let's look at this kind of in a long-term view. This happened and then this happened and 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 and then you're here. Because most people just say, oh, now I'm here and haven't traced it back to maybe the longer term issues that have been happening. So I think it comes from... I think having a good assessment, a proper assessment. And and when I say a proper assessment, I mean, probably, well, I mean, speaking for myself, my assessments take at least four hours. <laughs> I don't know people, no one is going to see me now, but they take a long time and they're very thorough. And I think we need to have a much better process of assessment. The other thing in terms of solutions is that I think we should have as standard, um, when you go to your GP, a psychology, a psychologist or mental health practitioner in the GP practice and ideally that you would have consultations that happen together so you go in and you see the GP and the psychologist because a tremendous amount of GP appointments certainly certainly over 40% and then after that statistics vary Um, I know GP colleagues of mine have said up to 80% but certainly somewhere around 40 to 80% of GP appointments are for psychological or psychologically related issues so more psychologists (laughs) Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Anyway, carrying on, the book notes that the research is weak on the serotonin hypothesis, that the idea of a hormone imbalance wasn't proven, but it's now widely accepted. Is this true? So with the serotonin hypothesis, there was mechanistic evidence. So what they they do is serotonin is synthesized from an amino acid called tryptophan, and tryptophan is found in food. So tryptophan uh, is found in proteins and protein-rich foods, and it does, it's quite a helpful amino acid. It goes off to um, produce serotonin. It also goes off to produce melatonin. So serotonin, your happy hormone, and melatonin, the the hormone that starts to get you ready to go to sleep. And what they do in the kind of uh, proof of concept for the serotonin hypothesis is to deprive you of tryptophan. So tryptophan is an essential amino acid, which means your body can't make it. You have to get it from food. So if you're not getting it from food, then your body doesn't have enough tryptophan to be able to to synthesize serotonin. And when that happens, people get depressed. So it's kind of mechanistic studies like that that gave credence to the serotonin hypothesis. And and again, you know, I think I think the issues with it is that 
giving people SSRIs, the serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which essentially means letting more serotonin be available in the brain, doesn't, you know, if this was the cause of depression and in a very firm, conclusive way, then we would expect SSRIs to be much more effective than they are. And again, it might be that there isn't enough serotonin, but it doesn't tell us why. Where's it gone? What's happened to it? Who's stolen it? And how do we restore serotonin in a sustainable way? Yes, no, I'm not suggesting um, that a 10 minute consultation uh, would be enough time for, um, for that kind of assessment. No, but I think... I think we've gone a little bit wayward in the way that we approach mental health uh, more generally. And it would require quite a serious overhaul to improve the situation for people. Um, it's quite radical. Um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying it would be easy. It, it's quite a radical approach. I think it's a necessary one and it would need a lot of buy-in. I don't know, maybe in 30 years time or something, I'll, I'll try and pitch it to government or maybe run myself no it's too much too much stress Uh, okay let's crack on so um yes so i said that the book misses the nutritional component and um i explained why that was and i've got lots of posts on some of the evidence behind the importance of nutrition in um, mental health so you can scroll back and see those oh then the serotonin hypothesis i'm going through all my points and i didn't even realize work so yes one of the other things is the importance of purpose in your work and again it's something that I think is well I think it's underrated but I also think it's seen as a luxury that people think that work is just for money and of course it is you know we have to live you've got bills to pay you have to eat but I think you also need to recognize that Work is where you spend most of your time, right? You spend more hours with your colleagues, probably, than you do with your partner. That most of your waking hours are spent with your boss, your colleagues in your working environment. And then you get a couple of days at the weekend to spend with the people you really like. No, I mean, um, but to spend with uh, your family and your friends, etc. So we really need to understand that the work environment has an enormous impact on our well-being. And that's not just the issue of purpose, but also how you get on with people. So I think, again, workplace bullying is massively underestimated. The impact of having snippy, mean colleagues or being micromanaged or having someone undermine your work or being overlooked for promotion all of those things because you're so exposed to it will accumulate and so I think we don't pay enough attention to the work environment but also that we don't pay enough attention to meaning and purpose in general and I think in a sense it might be a bit idealistic to think that all work can be meaningful. I think there are ways that you can make most work more meaningful. But one of the things I always try to emphasize with the people that I work with is that if your work cannot be meaningful, if it can't be the thing that fulfills you, if it can't be the thing that kind of gets you out of bed and like makes you excited for life, then you need to ensure that you're finding other ways to do that. You need to make sure that there is something else for you that makes you feel as if your time is valued, that someone would miss you if you weren't there, that you contribute something unique and important to that environment or the people or something. Because I think without that, we really, really can struggle to understand our sense of value and our sense of place. And that's, I think, one of the things that he does get across very well in the book is the amount of separation and distance and kind of dislocation that we have in our Western environments, our Western societies, that it's incredibly independent. It's incredibly um, kind of goal-driven, 
individualistic, isolationist way of of being in the world. You know, it's kind of there can be one winner and everybody else is a loser. This kind of very zero sum approach to life. I think it can drive stress. I think it can make people feel as if their place in the world is very fragile because it essentially means that you're only as good as your last success, right? And if you mess up, then, you know, someone else is kind of climbing up ready to stab you in the back and, 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 and take your place. And I think that can create a sense of anxiety and tension that can undermine and erode your well-being. Okay, which book? I didn't catch you from the beginning. We're talking about this book, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. I will pop, I mean, you can find it, but I will pop a link up if that's helpful. That's fine. So yeah, that's the one. What was I saying? <laughs> um, so thinking about the importance of trying to find value in work, yes, and not being, not feeling as if everybody around you is a competitor. That's another slightly different psychological social problem because we are socialised to think that everybody around us is out to get us often and that we can't show vulnerability or weakness because someone else will use it to their advantage and to our disadvantage. And again, that creates a sense of distance and separation and of a kind of it makes adversaries of everybody. And if you've made adversaries of everybody, then you're fighting all the time and fighting all the time is exhausting. So I think there are important ways that we need to try to shift away from this adversarial approach to the world and understand that we are all trying to work this out together. We're all struggling together that we can enjoy other people's successes. I was going to do a separate post on this. Um, maybe I'll just tell you guys now, but we have, I think, a little bit of a problem being supportive of other people's successes without feeling as if it undermines our own. So if you've got a colleague who does well in something and then that feeling is, oh, oh, well, I, you know, maybe now I need to step up. It's like, no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa it's all right. You can just be happy for that person. And I think, and actually that is something that he talks about in the book when he talks about his catching up with an old friend and how she used to feel very envious and how she's trying to work and cultivating a sense, I think they call it empathic joy, but essentially just being able to enjoy other people's successes. And on at a very, very basic level, what that does is just to give you much more access to joy, right? Um, if it's not just your own joy that you're celebrating or the joy of the people in your very close intimate circle, then actually you've got much more access to good feeling if you can celebrate that person over there or that person over there and be happy for them and cultivate a way of being pleased for them. I think accounts like Upworthy, there's one called Tanks Good News, um, both of those on Instagram, where they just share good news. And you can be like, yay, humanity are really good uh, for that, for offering a an alternative to what can be a very negative, competitive, competitively edged media and society. So uh, those would be my recommendations for getting a little bit more good news in your life and cultivate cultivating your capacity to share in other people's joy. I'm going to sip my tea, which is getting very cold. I've made a note here about trauma being trapped in the body. And I think I made that note when I was going through the section on, he talks about child abuse and the relationship between child abuse um, and overweight and obesity. And that 50% of people who live with obesity have experienced um, childhood sexual abuse. And I feel like that point needed highlighting because, again, when we're thinking about people's experiences and the way that people's bodies can be judged, you know, this is not to say that everybody who lives with obesity has had this experience, but we need to understand that trauma can live in the body. And I think particularly if you've had a body-based trauma, so that might that might be some sort of abusive experience, but it might also be something like a traumatic injury. If you were in a road traffic accident, um, you know, something happening, then that trauma unprocessed can get lodged in the body, right? So uh, in analytic terms, 
we think of it as we call it the skin ego. So if you're your psychological ego in the classical sense and not in the modern sense. It's gonna start getting complicated. Um so in the kind of everyday sense, your ego is a bad thing, it's a thing that makes you a bit of a narcissist and a horrible person. In the classic analytical sense, your ego is the part of you that keeps a balance and a kind of realistic view between your kind of childish needs and wants. Um, the part of you that just wants to have a tantrum when you can't get your own things and the part of and your kind of critical conscience your ego is a bit that kind of keeps everybody calm and says look you can't have that it's not that bad let's see what we can manage if that isn't functioning then we think about the skin ego we think about people holding things in their body and you can see that on an everyday sense right when you're stressed when you're tense you can find that your muscles tense up and it's as if your body almost firms up to hold on to that tension for you um a lot of people talk about the gym being their therapy and i think a lot of the time what they're describing is a, a way in which they substitute physical strength for mental strength so when they're feeling like i'm not feeling particularly strong in my mind i can compensate for that by reinforcing a sense of strength in my body. So we think about the way that the body can substitute for psychological processes. And so when we're thinking about feeding issues, body and um, kind of body dysmorphic or body concept issues, then we are thinking about the way, how does this person process emotion? How does this person deal with things that emerge for them? Do they have the words, the capacity, the experience to be able to think through it, work through it, talk through it, ask for help? Or is there a way in which they hold on to a tremendous amount of tension in their bodies? So yes, I, I think I just wanted to highlight that point because I think it's it's not something that's spoken about very much, but you can see it in people. You know, you can see when people hold on to things in their body and maybe they can't find the words for it and they find it very difficult, but it's it's kind of their live in in their physicality. And maybe that's makes sense to you. Maybe you kind of connect with that and it might be something worth kind of thinking about, reflecting on. All right. So we have a few more minutes left. Um, do not make the individual responsible for the problem. Yes. So that's my note to myself just to say again that we need to be very, very careful whenever we're talking about depression and mental health and and resilience and I use the word resilience fairly regularly but always have to be quite careful to caveat it to say that we need to not say that resilience means being strong enough resilience is more a notion of someone's individual capacity to tolerate certain levels of distress or certain difficult experiences and that capacity will vary, right? So in my book, I, I, I say that, for example, you might be perfectly resilient to deal with, um, let's say, stress at work when everything else is fine. But let's say you're in the middle of dealing with a breakup, then the stress at work is going to be much, much harder for you to manage because your resilience is already being eroded or undermined by having to deal with something else. So resilience isn't a static feature. It shifts and it moves and it's affected by the environment and the things that are going on for you. And it can be modulated. You can learn tips, you can learn tricks, you can find ways to maybe enhance your resilience. Partly that's about doing what I call like boring self-care, that kind of everyday self-care to make sure that you're not eroding your own resilience with other things. So like one of the things that we think about is dealing with kind of niggling issues, right? So if you've got a little bit of knee pain or a little bit of back pain that is irritating you and it's a bit kind of under the radar, actually get it dealt with because if something else comes along which you find stressful or pressurizing, that's going to be one thing that's kind of taking away your energy or your capacity to be able to manage that next thing. So boring self-care, like paying your bills on time, right? Um, trying not to take out too much credit. Money is a massive psychological issue. It's a big stressor. People don't talk about it enough. Dealing with difficult relationships, having the big conversation, 
you know, trying not to procrastinate too much, all of that sort of stuff, which is kind of not bubble baths, not face masks, but will help to make sure that the everyday amount of hassle that you're dealing with is low so that you have much more reserve, really, which is what resilience is. It's what's your available reserve should something bigger happen. Are there supportive phrases or a conversational direction that would support them without triggering any issues? I'm not sure. I'm not sure who you're talking about. So um, you mean someone who's kind of very in their body. It, I mean, everybody's different. It's hard to think of a phrase that would work for everyone. But I sometimes, sometimes just very gently naming something. So saying something like, your shoulders look a little bit tense. You know, is something going on? And so to not make a diagnosis, I think sometimes people can <laughs> kind of barge in and say something like, I think you're depressed. And if you're someone who doesn't have the words or the language for that, or ha- has had a bad experience with expressing vulnerability in the past, that's going to feel very, very threatening. And they're you know, going to feel like they want to retreat from that idea. So I would say don't jump in with a diagnosis, but to say, just to make a very gentle observation. Okay, so um, yeah, like you... I feel like you haven't been sleeping very, like if you're the partner, like you tossing and turning in your sleep or yeah, you seem very tense. Like, you know, so, you know, make a very gentle observation and then just ask, is everything okay? Is there anything I can help with? And then that hopefully will give a little bit of space that feels non-threatening for the person to come in and say, well, actually, yes, you could help with this or this kind of thing's just kind of on my mind. Um, if you were supporting someone with a weight issue, for instance, I would probably ask uh, this person for a bit more information because, again, uh, weight is deeply personal. Um, and, and similarly to food, weight is both personal and public, right? So we have our own experience of our bodies and being in our bodies. And then we have that social experience of being observed and of being in the world. Sometimes those are well reconciled and the person can have a a kind of independent sense of themselves that they feel quite secure in and sometimes not. Um, Sometimes it can feel like those boundaries are very easily crossed. So for certain people, any comment about their body, about their weight, is going to feel like an attack if that's their overwhelming experience, even if you don't intend it to be, even if you come from a place of kind of deep love and compassion. So it'd be really, it's a very, 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 very nuanced thing. All right. I really enjoyed this book. Thank you for your recommendation. Have you other similar books you would recommend? Um, So similar books on this theme. Um, not yet if you go into my um the link tree in my bio i have a list of all the previous book club books and um you can have a look at those the i do have next uh, month's book lined up actually and that was another recommendation from you guys so since you're here next month's book is the body the body keeps the score the body keeps the score um i'll i'll post it uh, in a moment. So that's next month's book, uh, which is um, a lot of you ask for trauma. So we're going to talk about trauma. And then we're talking, we'll be talking a lot then about the body ego and the way that things are held in the body and how the body can be a substitute for the mind. All of that will sit in next month's book club. And so there was one more thing that I wanted to say. Oh, yes, it was just a, a very interesting, uh, the way that he put it, because he was in the section where he's talking about junk values and advertising and how easily swayed we are by advertising. I guess that's something else that I wanted to highlight because I think, again, it's so commonplace and it's so everyday and we see it everywhere. You'll see it even here. As soon as you come up here, if you stay on Instagram, there will be adverts all over the place. And uh, we... Are so used to it that we don't recognize the impact that it has on us but of course if it didn't have an impact marketing companies wouldn't pay the money that they pay to 
post the adverts or get people to endorse their products. So it's clearly very effective. And he has a line, it says, advertising is the PR team for an, ec- uh, an economic system that operates by making us feel inadequate. And I guess I would invite you to just be thinking about that. So, you know, the next time I did this on the tube on the way home yesterday, and there was a new campaign for makeup and it's just this kind of super close up <laughs> it struck me as like very very strange how close we were to this woman's face and looking at her skin and you know probably photoshopped and smoothed and buffed to within an inch of its life and I just had this kind of strange out of body moment where I thought you know if I were more insecure about my skin that would be something that I would be on my way home worrying about and thinking well maybe I should invest in this product and maybe I should you know that it would be something that for want of a better phrase got under my skin and we're bombarded with them so I think it's something just to kind of keep in the back of your mind Uh, I saw I think it was a quote the other day someone saying to always think about who is profiting who is profiting from me feeling bad about myself when I see this advert and to to use that as a way of judging whether you do suddenly want that product or whether it's triggered a sense of insecurity or inadequacy in you that someone else will profit from. Yes, I think because one of the things I keep forgetting is that you can't do a full out or over an hour on this. So I, I think we need to log off soon. Um, what's that last comment? Love the quote. It's not health to be well adjusted in an ill society yes the other one it's not a sign of health to be well adjusted in an ill society and I think that's exactly it but we need to be very very careful that we're not making the individual responsible for the ills of society that we're not making the that one person responsible for fixing in themselves the problem that actually exists outside of themselves so yes I think that is all I have for you today. Thank you very, very much for joining me this evening. I will get next month's book up shortly. I have kept all of these recordings back simply because you do not know what it's like behind the scenes. (laughs) Um, But hopefully after um, mid-month, after mid-February, things should be able to calm down a little bit. I'll be able to get through to um, just editing and and uploading those podcasts so thank you for your patience on that and uh and for your time and your questions today so thank you so much i hope to see you next month for next month's book club uh any other questions uh, let me know underneath this post underneath the um book club post and other than that i will see you soon planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 